Be Real is presented by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can paint and write, design and write, and make a film and write. You can also just write. Look for their faculty member Leslie Carroll Roberts' critically acclaimed Here is Where I Walk, Episodes from a Life in the Forest, out now from University of Nevada Press, and Adam Nemetz, We Can Save Us All, from Unnamed Press. For more information, power on your computer and visit cca.edu slash writingmfa. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Welcome, one and all, myself included, to your movie-reappraising, genre-hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name's Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard, the alter ego of the podcast The Chance is hosting in his mind. That's right. And we are here, as always, to talk about uh, a genre of movies. That's what we hop to, genre to genre, based uh, on anniversaries and new titles these days, it seems. And on this episode, we hit we've both got... this week. That's right. We're going to talk about Gemini Man, Fight Club, which is turning 20, and Us, which is turning, God, seven months old. Um, because, yeah, we're doing My Own Worst Enemy, which is uh, movies where the protagonists battle whether literally or uh cosmically themselves so i think i wanted to say at the front like spoilers are going to abound like if you've never seen fight club i don't think too hard i may have just spoiled it for you by including it in this category um but yeah get out of here if you haven't seen these movies or don't want to hear them spoiled yeah no especially fight club which the spoiler is like so key to understanding and talking about it also it's 20 years old it's 20 as always we're real jazzed to be on the playlist podcast network please check out our fellow shows like the fourth wall and the discourse and indie beat like and subscribe get us wherever you get your podcasts like apple Podcasts or spotify or stitcher and we're super jazzed as always to be brought to you by california college of the arts writing mfa program uh we love those guys we appreciate it um, absolutely what um we have an interview today too right and coming up i have uh portland film writer mia vicino who is also uh something of like a letterboxed i keep wanting to say celebrity she is a heavily followed letterboxed persona as brad pitt is she an influencer is she a letterboxed influencer that's probably the modern parlance uh, and she was uh, super nice and is a super a Brad Pitt turbo fan. Um, so yeah, Sam. we're, we're going we're gonna to hear her talk about Fight Club in a bit. We're going to start with a new title. We're going to start with Gemini Man. Absolutely. Tell me something. Why is it so hard for you to kill this man? He knew every move of mine before I made it. I'd have him right there and take the shot. I wanna be forever young. And he'd be gone like a ghost. Do you really wanna live forever? 
Who is he? Will Smith, Ang Lee, uh, a sci-fi film that seems more like a 1999 film, but uh, is is a 2019 film. Um, the premise is our premise. Uh, Will Smith is uh, is a hitman, a really good hitman, as we see from the opening scene, who retires from his CIA, or DIA, as this movie would call it, retires from his contract and wants to live a... A Quiet Life and Buttermilk Sound in Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yep. Uh, but they're not going to let him retire. Um, he knows too much. It turns out that in sort of like a nonsensical uh, movie-defining decision that Clive Owen, uh, his former commanding officer, just a mean son of a bitch, has... Well, he's a great name. Clive Varys. No, no, no. That's his... It's not Clive. It's Clay. Clay Varys. Yeah. Yeah, this movie is like very funny because of the number of characters it introduces, like as though you're supposed to care, and like you know Dell, that's his, uh, that's his contact at DIA. We all love Dell. No, we don't. Or that woman who's like maybe the the bureaucrat that allowed all this to happen. We see her right. twice. Yeah, yeah. So Clive Owen has uh, has made a younger version of Will Smith, which is which is what brings us to this category here today. Well, he hasn't really, yeah, he's, he's designed based on Will Smith's blood, but then raised as his own child, a younger Will Smith, but with his same, yeah, he calls him junior. And that is such a weird, like mind premise to get around in a movie that is in a weird frame rate and coming at you, at least in my screening in 3d. And it's like, wait, they have this whole bond over the past like 20 years or something. And like, this is the moment where he's like starts to suspect things are weird. That's very odd. Yeah, it's got the script of like a TNT original movie, but with which is so sad because it's written by David Benioff, but with the technical ambition of Ang Lee, who is has won two Oscars. And uh, I think believes himself to be trying to innovate what cinema can do technologically. So let's talk about that. Because mine was in... So my theater was just in the 2D. And part of the storyline of this movie is that there are no theaters in the country that can do the full 3D 4K 120 frames per second Right. Like they just it, this cannot be shown in the way that Ang Lee wants it to be shown. That's incredible. You were definitely, you were definitely closer in your screening though. So tell me well, how I it was works. in the brand new Dolby re uh remodeled um Lincoln Square theater and it was fucking incredible. It's such a I mean I I I'm picking up what you're putting down with this idea that like why make such a beautiful stupid movie. Um <laughs> but like for the first five or 10 minutes it's like a wholly new visual experience than anything i've experienced before and you i was thinking about it this is like a arbitrary comparison but we watched uh what the peacemaker together in new york a few weeks ago which also begins with like a european like an like a european train sequence right with like some some chicanery going on, and I, I just, love a European, especially an <laughs> Eastern European opening train sequence. 
I think we're in Belgium, so kind of like Central Western Europe. But but the the point I was trying to make there is like it opens with this shot of like Will Smith, you know, what is he, two kilometers away from the train, leading the sniper shot like Joe Montana leading Jerry Rice. And just the, you know, it's got that everything's so hyper real. It almost it feels faker almost, but like in a still interesting way, as though the, the meadow is just kind of painted onto the screen. Um, and you're like, this is so much better than the procedural action movie that it absolutely ends up being. Oh, totally. With a hokey premise based on some garbage science. Um, yeah, but I, I was pretty blown away by that sequence. It does have that annoying, like, I mean, I don't know. It, it's very digital looking. So it's like you have to buy into its visual style right? if you want to be impressed by this movie. And I think the opening scene gives you like that five, six minutes of okay, if I buy and this is how I will be rewarded, mm-hmm. but then which which pays off in one of the most incredible motorcycle sequences I've ever seen. Tell me tell me what's so great about that because I, I've heard other people say that and I just didn't make that much of an impression on me. It had to be because it wasn't in 3D. I guess it had to be because it wasn't in 3D, but like the the seamless transitions from like, what you believe is a POV shot to one that's like zooming next to the right. the motorcycle itself. It's just such a jarring perspective change that it's like very sort of intense and like makes you feel like you are going to fall over. Mm, like these, mm-hmm. if you look away too long on these motorcycles, you will crash into something. Um, and in a way that like, like POV movies don't do much for me, but this one like really kind of, it did it tastefully, so you really felt you were, you were in the action, at least in my uh, experience, and those sitting around me in the theater. I was quite impressed, too, with the, the later set piece where they stage a whole fight in the catacombs by the light of a rifle. I thought it was like such an interesting way to both um, calculatingly share and hide what they could do with the young Will right. Smith. Um because you can totally control what and what you can't see by the movement of Mary Elizabeth Winstead with a gun. Well, that's old school movie making, though. You don't need that much de-aging if it's in the dark. So just put his stunt double in there and like have them fight and like let the audience sort of imagine. Right. And we should clarify it's not... Will Smith has gone to great lengths to clarify that this is not de-aging. It is a fully like computer graphics rendered version of himself, which I think is a little silly because like, Will, is that more desirable or better somehow? I think he's just trying to make the movie stand out in all the Irishman talk. Um, How do you think young Will looks? Terrible. (laughs) The whole time? Not the whole time. There are certain shots, but I have to say they did not stick the landing of that shot when Clive Owen's like giving him like a popsicle or whatever in his room after he got some boo-boos and it like comes around his shoulder and it's like, it's like, I know that Madame Tussauds is not real. Like those are wax figurines of famous people. Like, I don't think I'm actually next to Morgan Freeman. Like that's not actually Will Smith. I spent a lot of time, um, just watching it, like trying to figure, I wanted to avoid saying just uncanny Valley and moving on. I was trying to figure out like what quite didn't work. And it's just the eyes, man. Like in that, in the exact scene you're talking about where he's like, you know, huh, slumped over on the bed, being all sad. And Clive Owen's like, I love you junior. Um, his eyes are not focusing on anything. And even when humans are zoning out, like their eyes 
have an attention span to something in the room. And it's just not there. And lots of people have said that the scene on the college campus at the end is one of the more the, well, like freakish it's not things. Only, <laughs> it is freakish and it's also just a, not a very good scene. So it like draws so much attention <laughs> to how weird, you know, just like you were saying, the human eye is drawn to the most painful thing on screen, <laughs> even when it's not really sort of participating. And so you're going yeah. from digital will smith like to the what are these people saying to each other like i wouldn't do that but you didn't do that because we were the same person but we're different because i'm a clone oh no and how did he enroll in college without any forms of identification (laughs) before that moment and so strange from like ang lee too i mean i know he's interested in how digital ingenuity can change the way we watch movies and like what we go to the movies for is what he's talked about when he's talked about this character but like it's also just a strange move from like someone who came up directing like sense and sensibility and the ice storm like so like a very kind of literate director who broke back mountain right who's very interested in human emotion although i will say bungle though it is like this movie certainly attempts quite a bit of pathos I think its attempts only lead to weird, weird, weird questions that are not, the movie's not prepared to answer. But a lot of, the movie is about the thing that we're making fun of it for, right? It's like, do we need people to do that? I guess that's kind of the point, right? Like, do you yeah. need people to, or is the original, I mean, it is a very interesting meta commentary, but also ultimately the answer is like, in my opinion, like, no. <laughs> Like, we can't just replace Will Smith with, like, a robot that, like, reminds us of old Will Smith. It feels like one of those movies that is supposed to be Will Smith saying that he's comfortable with now being a man over 50. But sort of everything about the movie, including even the jokes in the movie about, like, I try not to look in mirrors anymore, is kind of like, he's he's not comfortable with it. Right. He's not comfortable with the things he's done. Uh I wonder if that's how Will Smith actually feels. I think Mm. about After Earth, and I can't look into mirrors. (laughs) The bar is low for Will these days, though. I mean, I think that I think that this movie, in many ways, and we got to touch on it quickly, is is pretty bad on a script level. But it's a lot better than After Earth, and it's a lot better than Bright. It's certainly more watchable than those. Um, How? does this movie succeed or not succeed on the my own worst enemy level? Do you think it has something either um, poetic or enlightening or interesting to say about like it me? I, I think like it's not interested in the bigger philosophical stuff about, you know, how different would you be if you were raised like quote unquote, like without flaw or without pain or without traumatic experience. Cause like inherently as a clone, like that's the thing I didn't get about the movies. Like I raised you without pain, but like you were an orphan and raised by like a single demanding father. Like it seems like he might've had some trauma (laughs) in his life. Yeah. So it like, it didn't care about like how like the path unchosen kind of thing. And like that humanity never really got into it. Uh, it was ultimately just, it felt like it was there for the special effect and not there like to be enhanced by the special effects. Also, is it a given thing that you would want to help raise and save your younger self? I don't know if that is such a given. I think in some ways you might be like driven mad um, by well, the yeah, because he kind of ends up seeing him by the end as like a son, 
which is so weird because he's not his son. He's just him. So maybe you like do have, I was surprised that young Will Smith lived at the end. If I'm being honest. Right. Cause he is kind of a Frankenstein's monster, but kind of he does and doesn't cause there's like the extra bad. Right. We don't have to. Yeah. Maybe that's too spoilery. The twist is so dumb. <laughs> the twist on the, on the twist is, is even worse than. Yeah. It's a real, uh, two crocodiles in Lake Placid kind of twist. Yeah. Um, or there's two killers in the original Scream, which I just watched. What a great movie. That's right. Uh, yeah, this movie is just curious to me on the... It pushes in all its chips on the nature side of the nature versus nurture debate, which is what you talked about. Like, the kind of, like, climactic, like, come-to-my-side speech from old Will is, like, you feel all these things that you can't explain, and you have doubts amid all your all your gravitas and your and your want to obey but it's like guy he wasn't raised the way that you were raised like you think that you think that stuff is hardwired into people yeah this movie purports like a certain morality that exists within everyone that like maybe it's nice to think that about that but i don't know that there's any like science i mean we're really like getting in deep on gemini man here but i don't know if there's any like psychological research that supports the idea that people would have those same like twitches and kinks if they were raised in totally separate environments you know what that you know what it weirdly is it's sort of like an argument for like god in a godless universe which i think feels bizarre right this is our our universe where like clive owen is is playing god um but there's that real appeal to like you know, we're all you're you're born of the same soul, which is a thing that I think we could talk about again with us. Um, of the human clone movies, I think it's definitely inferior to my preferred favorite, uh, The Sixth Day. What's the Sixth Day? It's the one oh, where Schwarzenegger. Arnold, yeah, Arnold gets accidentally cloned. Yeah, and then it turns out that like everybody's been cloned. Classic. <laughs> a classic. Classic clone twist. What did you think of the chemistry between Will Smith and Mary Elizabeth Winstead? Is it as potent as her against Ewan McGregor, her now husband? Another thing where like she is kind of has a relationship with two of the same people. Do you think she's only getting casted as the opposite <laughs> twins at this point? That's like a writer she has. Like I'm only interested in pictures where I get to act against two people playing different people. Or one person I, playing two different people. That's so funny. I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead's performance is fine to good, but I think that the things they're asking her to do again make no sense. I really got hung up on the line where she's trying to, you know, get rid of him at the beginning, and she says, I'm going to get back to my Marvin Gaye song, where she's like working at the dock. And it's like, that's totally like a freshman English class thing where somebody gave you the note what kind of person is this? Like, what kind of music does she like? And so you add it arbitrarily, but it makes no difference. Um, she has to say things like, I'm going to get back to my Marvin Gaye song. And then there's the much louder, ridiculous thing of like, um, I'm not age appropriate to you, so I'm not attracted to you, but my clone will be. And then in the next scene, he makes her unnecessarily strip. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was what a weird... Fuck? That was a weird scene. That amounts to nothing in terms of actual chemistry. 
All right, so let's rate Gemini Man. Uh, for the uninitiated, Please. we rate movies on two gradients here, good and bad. Uh, the first gradient is for technical quality, um, and the second is for watchability. Uh, so, da, 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 da. I could see going a lot of different ways on Gemini Man, but for me, I really I haven't overthought this, I don't think. I'm just going to call it a bad good. I think it's super watchable, and the things that are actually technically really cool about it only serve the watchability they do not serve a more coherent artistic project so it's an easy bad good for me i think it's almost quintessential bad good right uh, in that it's not a good movie right. but it is certainly fun to watch there's some great action sequences um i mean seeing the will smith thing is like cool if like sort of stupid right. uh i mean seeing any I mean, seeing millions of dollars thrown at doing something that was totally unnecessary, but they did anyway to see if people would pay money to watch it, uh, is pretty good. And did anyone pay money? Hold on. How did you this weekend? 20 million. That's not going to make it. That's not great. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and a quick nod to the people who are, you know, patting this movie on the back for being original, because yes, we want original things, but like, it's not good. I'm sorry. We still want original things, and this movie is such a hammy, like Tony Scott movie. Yeah, that was repackaged because of the premise. Than they otherwise would have casted like a younger actor. I mean, like this is certainly not Looper. You know, no. it could be could be close to that if they like like that's a movie where this technology would have like made sense. Mm-hmm. In this case, it doesn't work. Right. Um. Yeah, and critically, a movie that has two different actors in it, each of each of whom is delivering a pretty good performance. Right. Uh, the, yeah, the, already, the third act of that movie doesn't make any a lick of sense. Yeah, uh, <laughs> a lot of a lot of writing ambition. Though we've already done Looper on the show, by the way, for the people screaming at their phone, "Why aren't they talking about Looper?" Moving on to the twentieth anniversary of fight club Noah, do you want to sum this movie up real fast and uh ring in its 20th year yeah so this i mean this movie is sort of essentially is office space as directed by david fincher where Uh you have guy pursuing the quintessential american dream where he like buys all the cool furniture and lives in the cool apartment and makes the bare amount of money that is necessary to live that sort of lifestyle and is a consumer and like does his mindless, albeit seemingly like kind of fucked up job, right. not really worrying about it too much until after a bout of insomnia, he encounters the violent Lothario Tyler Durden yeah. who turns his world upside down through his sort of bizarre teachings. Brad Pitt, of course, plays Tyler Durden. Ed Norton is our is our narrator. Jack, he's sometimes called. Um, did you have a moment with Fight Club? Because people's moments with Fight Club are awesome, often interesting. I remember seeing Fight Club and sort of like enjoying it, I guess. I couldn't really remember. I mean, I remember thinking this movie positively, but then there was like this sort of annoying girl in my high school who parenthetically was like very wealthy, who wore this pin on her backpack that said, not your fucking khakis in this Mm. sort of like Tyler Durden-esque statement of like, I'm not a consumer. Like 
I live by the beat of my own drum kind of thing. Right. Which is, if you re-watch the movie and are not duped by its suspect politics, uh, it's it's not really about those poli- It's not a manifesto for living that way. It's a manifesto for being skeptical of, I don't know, but at least that way of thinking. Sure, sure. I think one of the most interesting things about it uh, it's 1999-ness, 20 years later, um, and this could maybe set up the conversation with Mia, is that um, for all the people who've misapprehended the movie through the years as being like a bro Bible, you know, to slap on, yes. your, to slap on your dorm room wall, um, it's like anti-consumerist thing feels, I don't, it feels both like very quaint and very relevant, maybe just out of reach now as it was then, because it's not really a movie about identity very much, which is, you know, the 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 du jour way to to conceive of of progressive politics. Um, and this is more like a it's like an Occupy Wall Street or maybe like knock down the the Wall Street Globe kind of kind of movie that, of course, like you know, spins out of its like coherence and like any ethical approach to that. Um, but all the things they're saying about like your your cable and your Martha Stewart in 1999 could easily be your Instagram and your Chrissy Teigen now. It still, to me, feels like weirdly aspirational and super flawed and also really dated. Because I mean, like Fincher at this time is a pretty sort of uh, out there filmic voice, like with seven, um, I guess, panic rooms after this. Mm-hmm. But those are like very dark, sort of bleak, everything's rotten and like your beautiful wife's going to end up with her head in a cardboard box kind of movies. Right. So it's it's difficult unpacking like what is the, what is Fincher trying to say and what he just thinks like goes into making an interesting movie based on a best-selling book. Sure. And maybe he's just being true to the source material in that way. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think you can feel that um, there are certain moments in the movie that are very intentional and funny and, like, tip the hand of, like, obviously we don't think you guys should go start lifting weights and punching people. Um, I think about the Ed Norton uh, delivery at the very beginning where he's hugging Bob um, at the testicular cancer circle. and. Bob, played by Meatloaf, is like is crying. He's like, "We're still men. We're still men." And Norton goes, "Yes, we're men," <laughs> which is <laughs> uh, to me that is the tonality of like what this movie has to say about dudes. Not um, come fight with us, but it does have that sort of early M Night Shyamalan kind of like these are mediocre times feel on the late nineties end of the millennium kind of question about masculinity. Right. Absolutely. This, the, there's a foulness to this movie. And this movie does posit that men have lost their way and they're trying to like reclaim something. But I don't think the, I think it's more a cautionary tale than some sort of like how to guide. You want to talk to Mia and then come back and uh, talk a little more conclusively about how you feel? That sounds great. Everywhere I travel, tiny life, single serving sugar, single serving cream, single pat of butter, the microwave cordon bleu hobby kit, shampoo conditioner combos, sample package mouthwash, 
tiny bars of soap. The people I meet on each flight, their single-serving friends. Between takeoff and landing, we have our time together. That's all we get. All right, live from the streets of Portland, uh, we have a guest on the show today to talk about the 20th anniversary of Fight Club. She is a contributor at Willamette Week and writes all the time for Much Ado About Cinema. She is Brat Pitt on Letterboxd. Mia Vicino, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to break the first rule of Fight Club with you today on the streets of Portland in front of construction. And the second yeah. rule. Yeah. All, some <laughs> of these guys over here look like they could potentially be in Fight Club. They could, um, but we can't ask them or right. we break the rules unless we want to break every single rule right here. No, let's just start with the first two. Okay. <laughs> um, so you are an avowed Brad Pitt fan and an avowed fan of, of this movie also, right? Yes. Yes, I am. I've dedicated my life <laughs> <laughs> to this man and his art. Um, and I am a defender of this film. Yeah, where do you feel it like fits into his oeuvre? Or, like, or just when you think about it, what comes to mind? I think that it is the quintessential Brad Pitt role. Oh, really? I think that it is the Brad Pitt role. I have thought about this hard. Holy and hell. Tell us yeah. why. Yeah. Well, I've, um, you know, I talk about him quite a, quite a bit mm-hmm. um, at parties and to anybody who will listen to me. And lots of people um, on the internet. Yes, lots of people on the internet. And I have found that just talking to other people, they're, they all say Fight Club. When I ask them what their favorite Brad Pitt role is or what they think about uh, when they think about him, they all say Fight Club. And, you know, at first I was hesitant to say that... Fight Club is my favorite Brad Pitt Brad Pitt movie. Uh-huh. Um, because it's the truth, but it's also like, really? Come on. Everybody likes Fight Club. Uh-huh. But where else are you going to get Brad Pitt in his element? Like, absolutely his perfect body. He looks the best he's ever looked. Wow. This role seems, like, kind of made for him because, um, you know, the narrator dreams him up. It strikes me that maybe he also like gets to make fun of the star persona a little. It's like rewatching it last night, it's kind of a he hams it up a lot. Yes. Which is enjoyable. Yes, he gets to do some comedy. Mm-hmm. Um cuz a lot of times, you know, he's he's uh typecast as, you know, the hot guy, which is true. But I feel like his most memorable roles like Fight Club and Burn After Reading and Glorious Bastards, yeah. Oceans movies, yep. you know. He's memorable because he gets to show off his natural charm and comedy and, you know, like play around a little bit. Um, Whereas his more serious roles, I don't care about as much. Like Benjamin Button. I don't, I'm, I don't care. I'm sorry. You're out on Benjamin Button. I just don't care about it. Okay. But um, yeah, I think that him hamming it up is just so much fun. I want to talk about the stages of watching this movie one goes through because you yourself have written about this Mm -hmm. and I have to tell you watching it last night I really kind of like wanted to be at a different stage I felt like very caught in the didactic of like is this movie serious is it political in this way is it political in this and I was I kind of like felt myself in the moment being like can I just watch this movie Mm -hmm. um but what are the what are the stages one goes through in watching this? So for me, my first stage when I watched it for the first time, you know, I was in high school. Yeah, I was like sixteen. As one does. As one does, you watch Fight Club in high school, and it's a rite of passage. And when I first watched it, I was like, "This is the best thing I've ever seen. It's genius. Like it's 
Uh, like the twist uh, kind yeah, of Yeah, the twist, the twist just destroyed me. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I was a little too young to understand any of the politics on the level right. <laughs> that is intended. Um, so I was just like, this rules. Brad Pitt looks great. I love it. And then as you rewatch it, once you grow up a little bit, you're like, ah, or at least for me, my second watch was like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Where was that sound this, coming from? Yeah. Like what was, it was, what well, was irking you? I kind of felt that it was um, not really critiquing Tyler Durden and his and his pals as much. Right. And then third watch, I was like, no, no, no. This is about capitalism. It's not about masculinity. It's about capitalism. Mm-hmm. Fourth watch, I'm like, well, it can be about both, and it's totally a critique on both, and it's doing it really well. And then Galaxy Brain Watch. The critical fifth watch. The critical fifth watch <laughs> is this is a gay rom-com satire. Yeah, tell me about watching it that way. That's my favorite way to watch it. I think it's easily the best way to watch it because, you know, like, well, first off, the author who wrote it, Chuck Polania, Portland native, shout out. Um, He is a gay man, and he's even said that he kind of wrote it as a romance. You know, in the book, there's a scene where the Tyler imagines like him, uh, narrator imagines him and Tyler like on the beach and Tyler's naked. Mm. That's, that's in the book. And uh, they mentioned it in the commentary too. <laughs> Brad was like, oh yeah, we should have put that scene of me naked on the beach in the movie. Um, yeah, the, te- the evidence is there. Sure. The, evidence, the sure. evidence is there. It's also a very phallic film. There's a lot of dicks in that, oh, in that yeah. movie. Um, it's just very, very masculine to the point of, in my opinion, gayness. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's also these men are kind of in love with each other. Yeah. More than just guys being dudes. Like, they have this really special intimate relationship because, you know, they're the same person. That right. helps a lot. Um, but also, it's just, like, the way they interact and the way that the narrator looks at him. I think that so much is said in the way that he gazes at Tyler Durden and his body mm-hmm. and the way he holds himself and his style and every single thing about him. Um and so, they have, like, domestic squabbles. They do. Yeah, they live together mm-hmm. and <laughs> in their house. And, it's yeah, it's very domestic. Like, um, uh, Interview with the Vampire, when, mm. when yeah. Brad and Tom Cruise adopt one. a vampire baby together. Right. Chris, uh, Kirsten Dunst. Right. Um, yeah, so I think that's just <laughs> the most fun viewing for me. That sounds great. Um, because it's, you know, like, obviously they intended for it to be a satire and everything, and they say that in the commentary. Like, this is obviously a bunch of frat dudes who take themselves too seriously, is what Edward Norton says at one point. Um, so, and in this political climate, you know, it's a little harder. <laughs> You're holding your hand out as if to yeah, brace I'm like, me and the world back. <laughs> in this political climate, it's just like things have changed since 1999. Right. Um, and while I do still think that the film holds up and it's still timely, um, you know, we're seeing the same thing with Joker. Right. There, I said it. I mentioned Joker, which I haven't seen, so no opinion. Me neither. Yeah. But, you know, it's, I think the danger in it is just the audience misunderstanding. Right. Not necessarily the content. I think the content is clear on what it's saying, but the audience, not for Joker, I'm talking about Fight Club. (laughs) Right. Um, But Tyler Durden makes some points. Sure. He makes quite a few points. Mm -hmm. Um, People are mad. Um, And he's, you know, he's really speaking to men, I Mm -hmm. feel like, um, in the film. Like, men are angry 
at things. Yeah. <laughs> and they have to take it out physically. And I think that um, it's hard to show that in a way that's critiquing it while also showing that they need a release. Yeah. You know? I like what you said about him making points because, like, if you were having beers with... If it stopped at the pitchers of beer scene, it would be like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. cool points, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... Like, cult leaders make some points. I think that's what, to me, that's kind of what it becomes. It's just like a a cult story. Yes, cult leaders make points. And Brad specifically is good at doing that cult leader making points thing. Because I joined his cult. I did it. I'm in it. I'm in it, baby. I am... I'm in it. And, you know, he won his Golden Globe for doing 12 Monkeys, his first cult leader oh, role. Really? Mm-hmm. He plays like an anarchist cult leader type in that as well okay. before Fight Club. Um, and obviously he was a critically acclaimed performance. He was nominated for an Oscar. He won the Globe. Yeah. Um, I think he's really good at doing that because he looks the part, mm-hmm. as we talked about. Speaking of the two looks, do you take the red leather jacket on the spiky <gasps> hair or the shaved head with the little... Red leather jacket all the way. Okay. I have a red leather jacket like that one. Oh, all right. <laughs> I dress like him occasionally because I'm a woman and it's cool to do that. Mm-hmm. It's subversive when I do it, everybody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have a Fight Club shirt, too, and I'm like, it's okay. Uh-huh. I am an Asian woman, so it's interesting. <laughs> if Tyler and his crew had used um, their powers for a little bit more good... Because um, I feel like sometimes they kind of stray from it. Yeah. Um, but their overall message of like rich people and businesses and all of that being bad. And, yeah. you know, it's so strange because it's like so clearly an anti-fascist film. But the fascists have kind of clung to it. Mm-hmm. Which is so strange to me because it's so... I think... Yeah, I think you watched it very carefully. I think it's very easy not to watch it carefully. Yeah, that's like, true. It is very, and that's the thing. I have to remember. <laughs> there's a lot it's, of just people beating the hell of each other and like, yeah. this feels good. And that's not the part of the movie that like really makes an impression on me at all. Yeah, it's today. like when I watch it, I really feel like it's critiquing it. But I guess when I put myself in the headspace of somebody else who's not me, who right. <laughs> I see how you'd be like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's right. I mean, you see it in the fact that a bunch of people made fight clubs right. after the film came out. It mm-hmm. like had a cultural impact, and people were making the fight clubs, even though <laughs> probably don't. Right, probably don't. <laughs> Let's talk about Helena. Uh, <gasps> Thank you. It's better for me every single time I watch this movie. Mm-hmm. And her performance is much better once you know the twist, too, I think. Yes, yes. It gets Once you know the twist, it's just tragic the way that he's treating her yeah. and the way that he is speaking to her. Just like, you know, how they're never in the same room. Tyler Tyler will go and then she'll walk in right away. And just he'll be like, why are you here? Why are you even talking to me? Like, ew, you're repulsive to me. And she's like, we just had sex for a very long time. We've been doing this. Like, what's going on? And it's just so sad because she's clearly like this woman who has trauma or something has happened to her Mm -hmm. and she is not happy. And she finally is like kind of hooking up with this guy who she thinks maybe might care about her. And then he's just treating her so poorly. Um, But, you know, when you watch it the first time, you're like, she's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and her, again, her, like, uh, her initial presentation is just as cartoonish as Tyler Durden. Mm-hmm. But one of the best things about the movie is that, like, she becomes, like, really real. And by the time they're, you know, having, you know, that diner at the end, mm-hmm. she's just like, leave me alone. She's, like, a very real person despite the, you know, 
her aesthetic. Yeah, because I feel like when he first sees her, he does kind of have this romanticized idea about her, even if he confuses it with, like, um, antagonistic stuff. He's like, oh, I don't like her. But it's like, you have a crush on her. You just are being silly about it. Mm-hmm. And, you just um, need to go to sleep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> just go to sleep. It'll be fine. Just go to sleep. But, um... Yeah, she does have that very, she's a very, very stylized. And um, yeah, again, I think it's just the way that he views her. Um, I think that this character does view both her and Tyler Durden. Yeah, and he kind of idolizes them because he's so unhappy with his own life. He tries to lose himself in in these fantasies. And when they don't turn out the way that he expects them to, things literally, everything comes crashing down. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of like two, there's like two doors and one has a real person behind it and the other doesn't and mm-hmm. he just chooses the wrong, the wrong door. Yes. <laughs> for most of the movie. <laughs> most of the movie until he wakes up and he realizes that, you know, maybe this isn't the way to go about it and maybe that he should, maybe he should be sticking with this woman who, you know, she has her own issues but they clearly care about each other. Um, and I think that, you know, that just the ending for me is what cements that idea. I think it's kind of not as clear (laughs) leading up to it that she's important, but you know, when it ends with them holding hands and watching everything come down, you know, you met me at a very strange time in my life. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think it's beautiful. Um, that message I feel like gets kind of lost in the film. That's not what I feel like a lot of people think when they think Fight Club. Like, oh yeah, love conquers all is the message of Fight Club. (laughs) But, um... You could well be right. Yeah, that's that's just my personal, and I think there are so many interpretations of the movie, but that's another one that I like, which is conflicting because it's also a gay film. (laughs) It's a bi film. We'll say it's a bi film. (laughs) Do you want to play a Brad Pitt lightning round. Yes. Oh, wait, before we do that, I want to ask you a more substantive Brad Pitt question because um, it's been put forth that this is the year of Pitt that it we're living is. in. I'm so happy. Well, I have manifested this. <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Ad Astra, are we or are you uh, learning anything else about him that we didn't know? I think that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood really showcases that he can do comedy really well. At least at my theater, both times I saw it, people were laughing so much when Absolutely. he's just so high on acid and beating up those hippies. Um, and it also shows, you know, how cool he is. Every time he's on screen, you're just like, whoa, that guy is cool. He's mm-hmm. still ripped at 55. He looks amazing. When he takes off his shirt and that scene is only there, basically, so we can be like, he looks great. Yep. He's showing people, like, by the way, <laughs> I still look perfect. Hot. At 55? At 55. Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, just for dick. And then Brad Astra, yeah. which is, I exclusively refer to it as Brad Astra. Mm-hmm. Um, that shows that there is something so much more to this, like, cool, funny guy that we kind of build up in our minds. Like, he's very lonely and he's very isolated. And, um, you know, that character of Roy McBride, he has to repress his feelings. He always has to be this um, stoic guy who's in charge and knows what he's doing and, you know, keeps feelings out of it. And Brad Pitt, the person, kind of has to do a similar thing because he's so famous. Yeah. Specifically for being the coolest guy Mm -hmm. ever. 
Um, but he's not the coolest guy ever, um, secretly. He's, like, dorky when you, like, read his interviews and, like, um, and his hobbies of just, like, oh, yeah, he just sculpts all day and, like, vapes and listens to sad music. <laughs> like, he is not this... He's not this image that we have of him, and I think that that's why he could connect so well to the Brad Astra character. It seems like he's getting really good at playing with that image, like yes. left and right. Yeah, as his career goes on, you know, it's just... Um, in my opinion, he's really, really good um, when he truly can connect with that character. Really, really, there's something that pulls him to it. And then he's not very good <laughs> if he doesn't have something that he can relate to yeah. in the character. Like, Allied was bad. War Machine was bad. That. Yeah. Um, there's there's a few that were just like, you are not doing a good job, little buddy. Interview with the Vampire, he doesn't do a great job because he wasn't weird. having fun. And... Um, yeah, so I think that he really does have these two sides to him, and we get to see both of them in those two films. It's All exciting. Right. Lightning round. Mia, the first Brad Pitt movie you saw? So my first Brad Pitt, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count this. It was the Burn After Reading trailer specifically. This is why I'm counting the Burn After Reading trailer. Okay. Because that was the moment where I, like, imprinted on him, and I realized... The, like, I, upward fist-pumping dance? Yeah. Okay. Oh, man. That was my first um, realization that I really was like, that's my husband. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my husband to, is that dumb personal my trainer. My husband <laughs> is that idiot dancing. <laughs> um, because before that, I hadn't really seen him, and I didn't like him. Mm. Because of the Shania Twain song, That Don't Impress Me Much, oh, yeah. where she goes, okay, so you're Brad Pitt. Most underrated pit performance? <gasps> Ooh, most underrated pit performance is Thelman Louise. Oh, nice. It cemented so many things about his his persona and the way he again, I've talked about this, but you know, the way he moves and like, you know, he's just a country boy. Right. And um I think that that role it's harder to pull off than you would think. Because um, you really need to believe that this woman is dropping everything yeah. for this cowboy she met on the side of the road. Um, and with him, you believe it. So I'm going to say that one. That's a good one. <laughs> Worst Brad Pitt movie in which he's still good? <gasps> mm. The worst Brad Pitt movie in which he's still good is Deadpool 2. Oh. He, he's great in his one-second cameo. Mm. Um, do you know Brad Pitt's astrological sign? He is a Sagittarius. That was so His fast. birthday is December 18th, three days after mine. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. Um, I was shocked to find he shares a birthday with Joseph Stalin today. <laughs> but, I mean, what are you going to do? There's only so many days on the calendar. There's so many. And wasn't Stalin, he was hot, right? I don't think so. Was it Lenin who was hot? If you made me pick, I think Lennon is hotter. Okay. Sort of one like, of them was the hot one. When you look up them when they were young and you're like, oh, no. I think you'll find that Stalin was not. Okay. Let me, mm. we can put an addendum to the pod after this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what do you, what is the first documented case in your mind of Brad Pitt eating in a movie? Have you noticed, like, how far does that go back? Because mm. Ocean's Eleven, like we were talking Ocean's about Ocean's Eleven was the when... Credit. That was when it was, like, noticeable. It was like, that guy's eating in every movie. 
Um, but, but before he eats that, on the phone in Fight Club. He does eat on the phone with the potato chips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that was. There's that one. Um, and then before that, he eats in um, Meet Joe Black wow. as well. Um, he the peanut butter. Mm. There's a. Have you seen Meet Joe Black? I have, unfortunately. Yeah, I know. Right, it's three hours, but he discovers peanut butter. Right, he doesn't and know what he's it is. Like, licking it and he's being silly and doing some Brad comedy. Yeah. Um, that could also be the worst movie that he's in where I think he's still good. Um, oh that's a real answer. That's a good, like, I would that's a good YouTube clip movie. But to yes, sit through it through the whole unbearable. three hours, it's like um, before Meet Joe Black, I want to say he might eat in seven. Potentially. Oh, you like have Morgan Freeman over for dinner? There's yeah, yes, exactly. They have, they have the dinner scene where Morgan Freeman comes over with Gwyneth Paltrow mm-hmm. and, and Brad. Yes, seven. Um, you, don't quote me on that, but I'm going to say seven. That's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess early. seven. That's 95. That's 95. That's like, I feel like you really worked your way. That's really early. That but I would, I need to mention something about Brad Pitt eating. Um, and Moneyball, because my favorite Brad Pitt eating moment is in Moneyball when he eats a Twinkie in two bites. That's all I need to say. Thank you. There you go. Um, and then immediately goes to the gym and works it off doing lad mm-hmm. pulldowns. Um, true or false, you meant what you said about the feeding tube and Ad Astra being hot. True. 100% true. That's insanity. The feeding tube was hot. And <laughs> For those who have not seen the movie, it's like stapled into his stomach. <laughs> But he's, okay. <laughs> I do, I do. I'm going to stand by it. I think it's erotic, and I think we need to expand our definition of what erotic can mean. Because he's, he's shirtless, and he has, to, he has to nurture himself. It's nurturing. Mm-hmm. Um, he has to take care of himself. And I think that it's hot that he can do that. He can staple it in on his own. He's a strong boy. And I think it's hot when he drinks water afterwards. And he, <laughs> there's that, like... He's just like sucking on the water bottle while like his silly voiceover goes yeah. about how he's sad. Yep. Um, yeah, I think it's erotic and I think there's not a lot in that film that's erotic. So I'm going to take what I can get. Very good. Mm-hmm. Um, Mia, that's truly all. You've survived the lightning round. You did it with a plum. Uh, that's all I've got for you. Thanks for being Thank on the you. show. Thank you for having me. Truly a, a true pleasure to talk pit Absolutely. anytime, anywhere. Thank right. you. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Why? How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? Wait, let me start earlier. Mia Vecino really likes this movie. Um, and I think I like this movie. I just kind of like wanted to watch it in a different way. I was trying so hard in this kind of like legacy building way to figure out like, what is it saying about... What is it saying politically in this in this battle of like toxic masculinity versus satiric satirizing toxic masculinity? Um, I don't know. I think there might be a middle way to watch the movie. Um, what? Do, how do you feel about it? There's something about how cheap the turn feels to me in 20 year retrospect that it almost like is so dismissive of any political read leading up to it because you've been duped the whole movie to believe that it's, it can't be a movie about toxic male relationships because ultimately there isn't one at the core of this movie in like a deeper psychological read. So then you have to think of the movie in the lens of like, okay, it's about mental illness which makes it hyper character specific and then maybe not even that relevant as a bigger read on 
Hmm. masculinity in the late 20th century. And I think it's when he figures out what's going on is like when the movie maybe becomes so like Kaiser Soze ish in it's like trying to wrap this up in like a bam kind of way. Hmm. It's, I don't know. I don't know that it sticks to landing. It's a long way to say that. Sure. Uh, so on rewatch, you think that knowing the twist doesn't help, it hurts. I think it's annoying the twist in retrospect to watch how not subtle the ways the movie's telling you that Tyler Durden isn't real, that it like maybe expected rewatch, which is kind of obnoxious. Mm. You don't feel like it's like being like, thanks for coming back. It's being like you were dumb the first time. It's like the penis shots in the kids' movies. Ah. It's like this, these sort of like things you didn't ask for nor want in whatever you were consuming that you realize later you've been exposed to, but you can't undo it. But it's also just like a lot of like dark shots of this like sick house <laughs> and these like sick white men who were just like doing sick things. And there's only there's only so much I can take of that, and like plus two hours uh, is excessive. So you, you got to set this thing at a prestigious college and have it be about the internet if you want it to last that long. There are incredible performances at the heart of it, though, and you right. can't understate that. I think Edward Norton, like it really set. I think maybe this is his biggest performance that I can remember, other than like uh, the one where he's that—that's the Barney parable. Um, Death to Smoochie. Death to Smoochie. Yeah. You mean biggest, like physically biggest performance, like him gotcha. running around in his boxer shorts and like going from airport to airport right. looking for himself. Yep. It's like him jumping over every like fence or guardrail he can find. There is something like dreadfully appealing about uh, Brad Pitt being an asshole. Um, the delivery of the lot where he's trying to um, pretending to kill the gas station attendant. Cause like next day will be the best day of his life. He'll, you know, he'll wake up and, and smell the air anew. And the, the guy's like, uh, Oh, Brad Pitt's got the gun to his head. He's like, what did you want to study? What were you studying? And the guy's like stuff. And he goes, Oh, stuff Were the midterms hard. What did you fucking study? <laughs> is really good i mean he's really appealing at also embracing the like i am better than you and i'm better than jack because he dreamed me up his dancing is great i love uh i love the touch i never realized like why his haircut changes and it's because the imaginary tyler you know shaved his head along with everyone in the cult um for the last part of the movie right which is good i don't know man i it's conf- it, conf- it confounds me to this day, but I do think it's it's not my favorite Fincher. I'd probably put like three or four other Fincher movies over it, but like I think it's a good good. You think it's a good good? Yeah, um, what do you think? I think I'm going to give it a bad bad. There it is. I There's think my Tyler. this movie is overlong. It's like full of its own... It's like it's puffed up by its own pretension. It's just like it's a premise movie. It's like an action driven premise movie. It's David Fincher doing the same thing Ang Lee is doing 
with Gemini Man with this. Taking a pop culture phenomenon in the pop space and like giving it a bigger read. But ultimately, it's just like a piece of consumerism in and of itself. Oh my God. You really are from 1999. You can't, yeah, man. You can't attack Gen the system X vibes from within. Over here. What's that? <laughs> you can't attack the system with corporate art from within. No way. I'm just trying to get that big globe to roll into my local Starbucks, yeah, man. But uh-huh. I don't have the tools to pull it off. And then the shot, Bob. <laughs> I uh, I don't agree with uh, much of that. But let's move on to us. Maybe it's, can I revise? Sure. No, I don't want to. Bad, bad. <laughs> let's keep it moving. We're going to talk about us. This is a... Of course, uh, Jordan Peele movie came out six months ago. Kind of like weird time to talk about it. Um, I think it's nice, though, because we kind of missed it on the pod. I think you were in town and we were trying to do other podcasts and we just missed it. Um, Yeah. I'm going to come out of the gate. I'm going to frame this a certain way, okay? Please. And then you you can refute me, as is what we often do on this show. Uh I'm going to make the case on, this is the third time I've rewatched it. I think it's one of the best movies of the year, like bar none. Interesting. So to, to, to start with it, um, it's the follow-up to Get Out, of course. You have a girl, Adelaide, who is who goes missing while at the Santa Cruz boardwalk with her parents in the 80s. Uh, of course, there's a, a bunch of twists that happen and there's room for me to screw up the names and who is who. Uh, but she comes out of this vision quest hall of mirrors where she sees herself and uh, nothing is the same. And we think that she's not talking and that she's gone through this horrible trauma. And so when she and her family, uh, you know, 30 years later, come back to Santa Cruz, her husband is Winston Duke. She's a daughter, played by Shahadi Wright Joseph, and a younger son, played by Evan Alex. Um, and she's having, you know, weird feelings about uh, being back all these years later. And then that night after a, a day at the beach, they are visited by them, or us, as they would say in the first person, a red jumpsuited uh, family of exactly them who are, who are tethered by fate or destiny or american commerce or whatever your particular read is to to live out the bedeviled version of whatever this um very 2019 nuclear family is is doing and uh they try to kill each other and have revenge and all kinds of twists ensue um i do think it is a movie that like really rewards rewatch and i can't decide i mean the get out comparison is kind of inevitable get out may just work better as a piece of entertainment like my dad has seen get out and was like, oh, what an interesting kind of like movie about race. If he, if you put my dad in front of us, he would not know like what the fuck to make of it, and he would stop watching. Well, that was kind of where I was, I think, when it came out. Like when I saw it in theaters, I was expecting something a little bit tighter mm-hmm. at the end, more of a bow. And this movie expects you to work for it a little bit, and that may well be seeing it a second time. That's a pretty big gamble, though, for like the places in and the demos in which get out found success. Although I don't know, man, I have never had at the, at the screen I was at for this movie. Like I have, I don't think ever had the sensation that as many people 
were wrapped and trying and like you could see their faces like contorting to try yeah. and figure out this movie. Um, and I think oh, it's it, definitely a fun one. I don't think it's like, imp- like, like totally obscure in first viewing. Right. I just think if you're expecting a spiritual sequel to get out, which is like a pretty spoon fed allegory about racism. Yeah. Uh, this is not that. Right. So I almost think that the get out comparison is not on this movie's side because it's mm. it's such a bigger, more sprawling, at least thematically, kind of movie. Yeah, I think the best part of it may be the like the different themes that you pick up later. So like let's let's talk about some of them. And again, we'll we got we gotta give it away. We gotta give it away. Oh the sure. Twist. Um so after you know that the girls switched place and that Adelaide is the girl from underground. She's who's been out from under for 30 years and that the Adelaide you met at the beginning is red. The girl who went inside and had just enough of like a seven year old's grip on the world above to start an insurrection beneath. Um, You can analyze those characters as archetypes. in I think like fascinating ways and the movie knows that. What's your favorite string to pull at? I think my favorite one and the one where I, I still don't know where the end of it is, is this idea of art because like red will talk about um, the day that her tether danced above was like the day that she found God and the day that like her people realized that she was the chosen one essentially. And so it's like, what do, in this very kind of like enlightenment thinking way, what does art mean for like the most destitute and denigrated among us? Cause I mean, clearly I think that this movie is the, the jumpsuit, the tethered underneath are just like a heavily metaphorized underclass, right? They're Certainly, literally yeah. underground. Right. And that these, yeah, I really love that idea that there literally is a staircase somewhere where the classes can visit each other, but it's like finding these like weird unguarded doors. Yeah. Is like that's how Jordan Peele sort of like that's what he accuses society of being. Like you have an amusement park on top of the door that could separate these two groups of people. Right. And so, like, that's really interesting and pulling at that thread and also pulling at the thread, too, because it sort of bookends the movie is this idea of these, like, maybe suspect nonprofit groups that, like, may or may not help, yeah, you know, the underclass and, like, how those political movements, like, take shape. But I think it speaks to your point earlier about this girl leading this revolution, but, like, her idea of succeeding or something was literally having all of her people line up coast to coast with their hands held because like that was how progress had been preached to her as a young girl. It would be like the equivalent of if, um, if the, if the 1% were all murdered and then they put, everyone had to wear Tom shoes or something like that sort of like very gesture based conscious capitalism, like turn like in the turned in the most violent of ways in and yeah, yeah absolutely that's um, exactly what i mean yeah thank you for understanding me yeah no i think what i think what you're saying is good um some other things i just lo- i think lupita nyong'o is unbelievable in this movie 
I think both performances are so different and so interesting, even on their own. Yeah. Um, and also you have the thing here uh, that shines in the category. I think this is part of the reason I'm so excited by this movie. I was especially excited to do it for the category because I think it's the ones that ask the most interesting questions about, oh, it's me. And what do I mean? And every time in the back of my head, I sacrifice like a principle just a little bit. And I live in a zero sum society. Like, do I hurt someone else? Do I hurt um, the alternate version of me? And I think that it's 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 both like easy to see and hard to see but like i don't know it's so much um so much thornier than just like oh i have a tyler durden did you know i noticed this time that uh red's walk when red walks around the house clearly a ballet she walks she's like clearly like on her way to first position i love shit like that i love that the sample of the um conclusive dance number is the sample from i've got five on it which earlier in the film, the more privileged Adelaide asked her son to try to get in rhythm with this sample as though like, let's keep our nuclear family like tight. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and that ends up becoming the, the murder dance at the end. I love that shit. That's great. The, um, the amount of mirroring in this movie is unbelievable. There must be hundreds of examples. I'm sure. Talk to me about the rabbits. I have to say on rewatch, I still don't quite follow why he reached for that visual image that doesn't quite add up to anything. I'm with you. I think that is the one part of the movie that doesn't work. I think there's almost like a Prometheus style creation myth in here where Red's like, they tried to make us to control you and they made the rabbits and I just don't get it. Like the no, movie tr- I don't either. Yeah, the movie tries to explain And that's itself. like how it's literally bookended, like visually bookended, the movie opens with a extended sequence over the titles of the rabbits. Yep. So I don't get why. And I think maybe because I'm left with that, the other, I, I hadn't previously unpacked some of the more interesting stuff because I was just so stuck on some of the visual. And then like, it didn't quite make sense to me that like, there, are they mirroring each other's walks and stuff like that? Cause he like gets the person to walk, gets the son to walk in the fire. And I was like, but they're not exact mirrors. They're just sort of, so there was visual stuff that didn't quite add up to me. Mm. I think he just knows that uh, the little brother will mirror him because they were doing it in the closet. I think it's just set up of like, oh, this guy is me, so he will But that seems me. like a, a reaching level of like, oh, how like us are they? And I was like, <laughs> they don't need to like physically mirror your movements. Like that doesn't sure. make any sense. Then it's like the fucking dumb ending of Annihilation. What's, what, what? I thought you when liked When Natalie Portman's like strangling herself. Yeah, but that part was stupid. Yeah, that's more of an art piece, though. Well, I think that this movie strives to be more of an art piece. Mm-hmm. And like maybe that's where it's not as compelling. Okay. Interesting. But I really yeah. like but, I mean, you. I think that Winston Duke is there for the. There are yes. lots of things for the first watch that I still think hold up quite well. I mean, I, I, on three times in, I still think that the Heidecker Moss murders are breathtaking and every time I can't fucking believe like how violent and funny and kind of mean that scene is where uh I love the bizarro Tim Heidecker he's so because he's still Tim Heidecker he's just like without the like the civility to him right (laughs) but he still has that personality there which is so funny right 
It's true. And I love his like slow sort of like deliberate like shuffle. Yeah. He's great. Great physical performance. Yes. And Elizabeth Moss too. I think that those are really, and I just love how she can't communicate with uh, Lupita Nyong'o in the opening scene on the beat, they like can't find anything to connect on, but she keeps going. She like keeps running through her list of interests until like something catches. And it's so funny how like adults, I feel like group themselves around, like maybe their kids. And because of that, you have these two people who like don't really care that much about the other. And you see that very quickly. Did you get, I got for the first time that that whole scene very clearly like a Jaws homage. The kid is wearing the shirt. Lupita yeah. is sitting there like listening to someone she doesn't want to listen to and then runs toward the beach towards the water. Um, yeah, it was definitely like a that's some bad hat Harry mirroring scene. Definitely. Yeah. You know, cool. or when the or the camera zoom uh, when someone shouts shark. Right. Um, yeah. I even think there's a there's a biopter shot late in the movie which also is like very spielbergian i noticed that too yeah um yeah man i i think the object work is really cool i i agree it it is it's not perfect i just don't get the like literal explainer for like these are the people who tried to do this when it's such a rich metaphor it's so confusing to to then be like here's who actually made us it's such a rich metaphor that is like overly explained and makes it like less believable because it's explained right. or so many, so much detail that isn't necessary. Like I think if it had just been as simple as like, they just never found the door before and they're not like mirror bodies, but they do have some point of contact with these people to show influence. Like then you do have a richer, more obvious sort of analog for, the class war that exists in this country quietly obscured by entertainment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What else? Anything else about us? I, I, I came out swinging there. I really, I kind of adore this movie. I think that the number, I hear of, that the number of choices it makes are so great. Like everything feels like a choice. And I know that might just be like an Easter eggy kind of like geeky way to watch the movie. Um, but I also think there's a read in here that I have not fully found the uh, end of yet too, just about family. A lot of emphasis is put on the beginning about the fact that Adelaide goes missing because of distance and disagreement between her parents, right? It's like really foregrounded in like the story of how this happened. And then you see a grown-up woman clinging as hard as she can to the four-person, um, you know, updated to be like not a white family in in hollywood terms but like a still like a picket fence version of a family with a summer home and good job and a howard university sweatshirt um and there is this kind of like did we all come here um because of like some horrible disagreement about the 80s and some toxic family culture like there's something else there too i can't quite figure it out but yeah, I mean, and I enjoy it for, to the nuance of putting Winston Duke in a Howard University sweatshirt. Right. Like, it's not a line of dialogue. It's just a really, like, conscious, interesting, uh, fat, like, uh, costume choice. Yeah. Which is great. And just even the way the house is decorated was kind of funny. 
Right. Like I really liked that space and it sort of has this like vibe that this house was nice maybe a generation ago and now it's just like a lake house, but they like, and then it's juxtaposed with their neighbors, like very garish, you know, like everything is like automated type vacation home. Right. It's, it's interesting. There, there is something going on with class in class and there's still race stuff in there, which I love. Um, and yeah. the amount of joy that Winston Duke ultimately takes in killing the other Josh is like right. the beat goes on. Like there's always like someone above you that you like secretly want to slice them with some knitting scissors. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, I think it's a good, good movie. I really like it. I'm super, I'm psyched to see where it ends up on my like end of the year list, but it's very, still very high right now for me. What do you feel? I agree that it is a good, good. I don't think that it is a like a, a high oh, year end for me kind oh. of movie. What are you gonna put? Are you gonna put Red Sparrow over it again? Yeah, I'm gonna go Red Sparrow. <laughs> I'm just gonna pick out movies from other years that I watched this year and the cobble you together. Know I don't like. I don't do chronological. I only do autobiographical lists. <laughs> terrible but in keeping with the category um right it's just me versus me every single day that's hey all right man anything else to say about uh this category any other movies like this we need to name check inglorious bastards is our is also a nazi satire i would say okay oh wait that's (laughs) (laughs) we're coming back real real soon to come talk about uh jojo rabbit so be on the lookout for that as always, thanks to the Playlist Podcast Network. A thank you to California College of the Arts' writing MFA program. And thank you to you, buddy, who, uh, even if you're not real, I still love you. Bye, buddy. It's been such a pleasure. I can't wait to talk to you very soon. <laughs> <laughs>